Skywatchers, thanks for listening to the Royal Observatory's Look Up podcast. I'm Dara, and I'm going to highlight what to look for in the sky in October in this Cosmic Diary. We'd like to give a special mention and our thanks to Henry Hobbsbaston, one of our work experience students this summer, who helped put the astronomical highlights in this Cosmic Diary together for us. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark, so that you can achieve better night vision. You should allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark, and remember not to look at your phone or any other bright device when you're stargazing. And if you are using a star app on your phone, then make sure to switch on the red night vision mode. The autumnal month of October is filled with a number of treats for stargazers. And as the nights grow longer, they're getting cooler too, so be sure to wrap up warm while enjoying this month's celestial sights. October begins with a full moon and ends with one too. When two full moons occur in a single calendar month, the second full moon is often referred to as a blue moon. But this is just one definition of what a blue moon is. Traditionally, the definition of a blue moon is that it is the third full moon in an astronomical season containing four full moons. This definition can be quite confusing for people using the conventional meteorological calendar because astronomical seasons begin and end at the equinoxes and solstices compared to the meteorological seasons which always start at the beginning of a calendar month. So how rare are blue moons? The length of the lunar phase cycle is 29.53 days, which is relatively close to the lengths of the months in our calendar, so most months will only have one full moon. However, on average, once every 2.7 years, two full moons will occur in one calendar month. Enjoy your planetary trio this month with Jupiter, Saturn and Mars all shining brightly in the sky. Mars reaches opposition on the 13th of October, which means that it will be at its closest to the Earth. The planet will also be at its brightest, and thanks to its distinctive red colour, the planet will be easy to spot too. If you have a telescope, do point it at the red planet. You might be able to see some surface features, including a polar ice cap. We can use the red planet, as well as the brightest star in the constellation of Aries, called Hamel, to spot another planet up in the sky, the distant ice giant Uranus. Close to midnight, stand facing east, then draw a line across the sky from Mars and a line down from the brightest star in Aries and look just below the point where these two lines intersect on the sky and you should be able to find Uranus. If you're up in the early hours of the morning, look towards the east and you'll even be able to see the planet Venus. For stargazers keen on spotting meteors, the month of October provides two great opportunities to do so. The night of 8th of October sees the peak of the Draconids meteor shower. Produced by the debris from comet 21P Geocabini Zimmer, the radiant of this meteor shower lies in the constellation of Draco. Although the meteor shower has a rate of around 10 meteors per hour, it has been known to produce more active displays in the past with the most intense showers recorded in 1933 and 1946. The Orionids meteor shower is one of the best known and most reliable meteor showers of the year, and it peaks on the night of the 21st and into the 22nd of October. 
Wait for the constellation of Orion, the radiant of this shower, to rise high up in the southern sky to increase your chances of spotting some meteors. Debris from Halley's Comet is responsible for producing the Orionids meteor shower, which has an estimated rate of up to 25 meteors per hour. Hunting for meteors is a waiting game, so bring along a comfy chair to sit on, wrap up warm, and have a hot drink with you, as you could be outside for a while. For your best chances of spotting some meteors from both showers, find a wide, open space far from streetlights and other light pollution. Once your eyes have adapted to the dark, face the direction of the radiant of the shower and scan the skies around the radiant point. Meteors can be seen with the naked eye, so there's no need for binoculars or a telescope. And don't forget that the clocks go back an hour on Sunday the 25th of October. So we revert back to GMT, or Greenwich Mean Time, and this marks the end of British summertime. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to us at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website rmg.co.uk. But now it's time for our cosmic news. Hi listeners, welcome back to the cosmic news part of our podcast. In this part of the podcast, a new story that has broken in the astronomical world in the past month is picked and delved into a little deeper. And I reckon some of you may be able to guess the story I've chosen for this month, as it did capture the imagination of lots of people when it broke last month. The possibility of life elsewhere in our solar system. And out of all places, the possibility of life on Venus. Yes, that's right. Life on Venus. Well, maybe. In a paper published in Nature Journal on the 14th of September, which was led by researcher Jane Greaves, a professor of astronomy based at Cardiff University, the discovery of phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus was announced, a potential sign of life. What's super exciting and really special about this news story is that one of the astronomers at the Royal Observatory Greenwich, Dr. Emily Drabek-Munder, the Senior Manager for Public Astronomy, was involved in this research directly. And towards the end of this podcast, you can hear from Emily as I ask her a few questions about it. But before we explore the discovery and its implications, we should understand why this news is so grand. And to do that, we need to know about Venus itself. Venus is the second of the eight planets orbiting the Sun, and at an average distance of 108 million kilometres from the Sun, it's much hotter than the Earth, which is the third planet out. In fact, surface temperatures on Venus can reach a whopping 460 degrees Celsius, making it the hottest planet in our solar system. It's actually even hotter than Mercury, the closest planet to the Sun. And that's because Venus has an incredibly thick atmosphere. It's so thick, we can't see through it down to the surface. And because it's comprised of 96% carbon dioxide, it's got a greenhouse effect going on. The sun's light penetrates down through the atmosphere of Venus to the surface. But when it's reflected off the surface, much of that heat gets trapped rather than escaping back out into space. Standing on the surface of Venus, the air pressure due to this thick atmosphere would actually make you feel as if you were a kilometre underwater here on Earth. That's the sort of pressure you would experience if you're walking around on the planet. But Venus is known as the Earth's twin, or at least it was. 
But from what I've described, that makes no sense. Well, Venus is known as the Earth's twin because they are very similar in size. Earth is just a bit bigger, and they are both rocky planets. But actually, that's pretty much where those similarities end. Because on top of the thick atmosphere and blazing temperatures, as I've already mentioned, Venus has clouds in its atmosphere, and some of these cloud decks contain sulphur dioxide and droplets of sulfuric acid. It is these clouds that reflect about 75% of the sunlight that falls on them. They are completely opaque, which means they don't let visible light through them. Remember though, there are different types of light, so you've got infrared light, ultraviolet light, x-rays, gamma rays, you name it. The entire electromagnetic spectrum of light. And it's these clouds that block our view of the surface of Venus, so visible light is blocked, but beneath those clouds, a fraction of sunlight does reach the surface. Now, it's actually these clouds which reflect the majority of sunlight that make Venus incredibly bright to the naked eye here on Earth, because you can easily see Venus with your eyes. It looks like an incredibly bright star. And currently in the UK, you can spot Venus by looking towards the east in the hours before sunrise. Now, sending spacecraft to the inner planets of Mercury and Venus is difficult, but spacecraft are how we learn more about a planet, because we can't physically go there. When I say it's very difficult to send spacecraft to the inner planets, that's an understatement. Whilst with sending spacecraft to the outer planets, our concern is more about accelerating them so that they can arrive at their destination with the shortest journey time. With the inner planets, the opposite problem sort of becomes the main issue. With spacecraft traveling to the inner planets, the sun's gravitational influence on them gets stronger as they proceed inwards. And that means when the spacecraft gets close to its planetary destination, you want to make sure that it's not going too fast. The problem therefore becomes about deceleration as well. Otherwise, you won't be able to enter the orbit around the planet. And instead, that spacecraft, it will likely end up flying past and end up being pulled in towards the sun. Now, as such, Venus has had very few robotic visitors. Definitely no human expeditions there, though. Now, the European Space Agency had their Venus Express orbiter, and NASA also had its Magellan spacecraft, which was an orbiter, and these studied Venus's atmosphere and probed its surface from above. But these have both now ended their missions. Spacecraft headed to Mercury use Venus's gravity assist to adjust their trajectories. And actually, even missions that are heading out uh, into the outer parts of the solar system, they often fly by Venus too for a gravity assist. As such, there have actually been lots of flybys to Venus, from the Messenger probe when it was on its way to Mercury, from the Cassini spacecraft on its way to Saturn, and also from the Galileo probe when it was on its way to Jupiter. NASA also had their Pioneer Venus 1 and 2 spacecrafts. The first was an orbiter, and the second consisted of four atmospheric probes, only one of which, though, survived to transmit data for just over an hour after it impacted with the surface. So perhaps surprisingly, considering it has temperatures hot enough to melt lead and 90 times the atmospheric pressure of Earth, there actually have been spacecraft that have landed on Venus, but unsurprisingly, they didn't last very long. The Russian's Venera program consisted of orbiters and landers, 
and the Nearer 13 became the first spacecraft to successfully send back colour images from the surface of Venus shortly before its demise. That probe only lasted two hours and seven minutes on the surface. Now, currently, there's Japan's Akatsuki spacecraft studying Venus's atmosphere from orbit, and the joint European Space Agency and Japanese Space Agency called JAXA, their mission BepiColombo is on its way to Mercury, and on its way, it's going to encounter Venus twice. In fact, this month, it's going to uh, fly past Venus. It's scheduled for the 16th of October. And then again, it will make a close encounter in August 2021. And it will use its gravity assist with Venus to catch it up with a fast-moving Mercury. So BepiColombo, its flyby, comes coincidentally just a few weeks after this discovery of phosphine on Venus. And hopefully it will provide a much welcomed attempt to study Venus's atmosphere from up close during this flyby, so that it might be able to provide some supplementary evidence. As for the future, ISRO, which is the Indian Space Agency, is planning to send its Shukrayan-1 spacecraft to Venus, and it will use radar and an infrared camera to map Venus's surface. It's planned to launch in 2023. Now, not an official mission yet, but VERITAS, which is an acronym for Venus, Emissivity, Radio Science, INSAR, which is an acronym itself for a radio technique, Topography and Spectroscopy, so that's VERITAS, is a proposed orbiter mission to Venus, which has made it down to the final four missions in NASA's Discovery Program, which provides funding for missions that are addressing present questions in planetary science and may hope to increase our understanding of the solar system. Now, another of the propositions is Da Vinci Plus, and that's another acronym. It stands for Deep Atmosphere Venus Investigation of Noble Gases Chemistry and Imaging Plus. And this is an atmospheric probe destined for Venus. Now, the final selection for this ninth discovery program by NASA, this competition will draw to a close next year. And with two out of the four proposals focused on Venus, there's a very good chance we'll see another spacecraft destined for the planet soon. Now, although we have lots of data from previous missions and new data being sent back from current missions, scientists continue to study Venus from here on Earth too, using some of the telescopes we have here on our own planet. And the detection of phosphine on Venus was brought about by the James Clerk Maxwell Radio Telescope at Mauna Kea Observatory in Hawaii, and confirmed with data collected from the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array, also dubbed ALMA, which is based in Chile. Now, an array denotes that these are several telescopes working together as one. And ALMA consists of 66 radio telescopes dotted in the Atacama Desert working together in a technique known as interferometry, where the distance between the two furthest telescopes sort of acts as the width or the baseline of your one theoretically larger telescope, where each of these 66 telescopes are like points on that one theoretical large scope. But to tell us more about the discovery, I spoke to Dr. Emily drabek Maunder, one of the scientists involved in the study and an astronomer here at the Royal Observatory Greenwich. And here's what she had to say. So thanks very much, Emily, for taking the time to chat to me today and also for our listeners. 
What an incredible discovery and congratulations once again on the study. I should mention that although you work here at the observatory now, before you came to work here, you were a full-time active researcher. And although usually I take some time to try and explain the science behind an astronomical study each month for our podcast, this month, who better to explain the science behind this study than yourself? I'm going to jump straight in. So firstly, the headline here is that the discovery of phosphine on Venus could indicate the presence of life. So could you explain firstly, what is phosphine? And we know that we find phosphine here on the Earth, so why is it a surprise to actually find phosphine on Venus? Yeah, sure. So phosphine is a gas uh, made up of phosphorus and hydrogen. Um, and here on the Earth, uh, phosphine gas is pretty much exclusively produced by life, uh, which is pretty exciting. So it's pretty, it's really, really hard to produce in any other way other than through life. So we find it directly connected to human activity through things like industry, for example, but it's also produced by microorganisms or microbes. Um, so things like bacteria. Uh, a lot of times we actually find um, that phosphine gas is produced by microbes that are found in animals' guts, like in penguins' guts. And so, for example, one of the waste products of penguins, um, just as an example, um, you see lots of phosphine gas, actually. So literally in penguin poop, you'll find that there's lots of phosphine gas hovering over it. And it's because of those microorganisms found um, in their guts uh, producing the phosphine gas. Um, so finding phosphine gas in Venus's atmosphere is really special because it's also thought to be very difficult to produce on other rocky planets uh, like Venus. Um, so finding it could indicate that um, there is possible life um, that's in the atmosphere of Venus. Now in our study, we actually did try to figure out how phosphine gas was produced through models. Um, in order to make phosphine gas, you have to put a lot of energy into phosphorus and hydrogen to produce that gas. And there's different ways to put energy into those atoms to make phosphine. You can use things like um, sunlight. So sunlight can put energy into those elements to make phosphine gas. Or if a volcano erupts, that can put energy into phosphorus and hydrogen to make the gas. Um, similarly, lightning can um, uh, supply that energy, and even meteorites hitting the surface of the planet, that can supply the energy. But the thing is, um, every single process that we know is potentially happening on Venus, it can't make the amount of phosphine gas that we actually see in the atmosphere. So what that means is that we have to start thinking outside the box. Either there's some unknown process that no one has thought of happening on Venus making this gas, or the gas could have a biological origin, meaning that life could be producing the gas, just like the life is producing the gas here on the Earth. So it's not so much that there, there is phosphine there, it's the amount of phosphine can't be explained by some other processes that we know are happening on Venus. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's definitely no penguins that we, we know of there, so I'm, I'm not sure it's penguin poo. But um, you were part of a, a research group with this uh, study. So could you explain what your role in the study was 
and how telescopes were essentially used to detect the phosphine on Venus, because we can't go there and pick up the, the phosphine for ourselves, right? So how is it that it was found or detected? I was one of the observational astronomers on the study, and I was brought on board because uh, I am an, an expert in using the James Clerk Maxwell Telescope in Hawaii, and which is the telescope that made the initial discovery of phosphine in Venus's clouds. Um, and I'd previously used that telescope to study star and planet formation, but also to search for gases from different objects in our solar system to uh, try to assess their potential for life. So I had previously looked at um, some icy moons in orbit around Jupiter and Saturn to see if they had gases that, that could have been produced by life. Um, so I was brought on board for that expertise and, and you know, for having used that telescope and things. Um, so the way that we use uh, a telescope like the James Clerk Maxwell Telescope to search for uh, gases in space is through spectroscopy. So we tune those telescopes using different instruments to a very specific wavelength of light or a very specific type of light. And we can actually see the signature of those gases in the atmosphere uh, of Venus, for example. So what's happening is that sunlight is reflecting off this planet, off the clouds of the planet, but a small amount of that sunlight will actually be absorbed by phosphine gas. And we can see that absorption feature at a very specific wavelength of light. So that's how we're doing it. So some of uh, the listeners here might be at school and, and studying about absorption and emission lines. So essentially you're, you're creating a spectrum, you're creating a spectrum of light uh, and you're looking for those dark lines, those signature features to be able to detect the phosphine there. Absolutely. Yes, exactly. Awesome. So we've got this idea that you've detected phosphine on Venus. There are different ways that it could have been produced, but actually none of them seem to be the likely processes. Perhaps it is life or some sort of biological signature. Could you kind of talk about perhaps life on Earth? So we know that life on Earth requires certain sorts of conditions to thrive. Could you explain what conditions on Earth make, us, make it a suitable place for life? What is it that we've got here on our planet that makes life thrive? So Earth is in uh, what we call the habitable zone around our sun, which is an imaginary band um, that is around the sun that it's, it's the distance that a planet needs to be uh, in order for it to be the right temperature for there to be liquid water. So when we look at life on the earth, every form of, of life uh, will need liquid water to survive. Some forms of life don't need much liquid water, but they still need some. And so when we're looking at uh, life um, in, in places, either in our own solar system or in other solar systems out there in our galaxy, we normally want to look for planets that are in the habitable zone. Um, now, the interesting thing is that Venus, though, on the other hand, is kind of on the edge of the habitable zone. It's on the inner edge. And so it's going to be a, a, a lot more of a different environment than, than what the Earth is. Um, so Venus, for example, doesn't have large bodies of liquid water on its surface. Um, and, and so if there is life on Venus, it's going to be um, perhaps quite a bit different than, than the life that we find here on the Earth. So liquid water definitely is key, and it doesn't seem that Venus has that. But does, ha does Venus have 
any sort of conditions uh, that might be required for Earth-like life. So temperature and liquid water, perhaps not, but does it have any other sorts of conditions that might allow Earth-like life to thrive there? So on the surface of Venus, of course, it's an incredibly harsh environment. But if you go up into the clouds of Venus, um, the cloud environment is a little bit more uh, reasonable. So it has lower temperatures in the clouds, more around 20 to 30 degrees Celsius. So that, that's a lot more reasonable. And it also has better pressures, more similar to um, the Earth. Um, so knowing that it has kind of nicer temperatures and pressures in the clouds, it could be that life is existing in those clouds as opposed to the surface of the planet. Now, the main problem that we have up in the clouds of Venus is that those clouds are made out of sulfuric acid. Right. And um, we do find uh, life on the Earth that exists in extremely uh, acidic conditions. We call these uh, extremophiles and specifically life that um, lives in acidic environments, we call those acidophiles. Um, however, even these extremophiles on the earth that live in acidic conditions, they can tolerate, um, you know, five to 15% acid around that range. But in Venus's clouds, we have nearly 100% acid. So, I mean, they're incredibly acidic. Um, so currently, the life that we find here on the earth couldn't exist in the clouds of Venus. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't life in Venus's clouds. There could still be some sort of life that have evolved to those highly acidic conditions um, and perhaps even have something like a protective shell to protect them you know, from uh, the, the high levels of acid in, in those clouds. So there's a few possibilities that we still have um, for life up in the clouds though. So perhaps a special type of adaptation, maybe. Well, this is a question that, that perhaps is a, a personal kind of um, indication. So we know that biological material life is a possible explanation, but by no means is this a definite, there are aliens on Venus, right? So how likely do you think it is that phosphine is actually being produced by biology, by life? What do you reckon? So our study definitely isn't, conclusive. Um, you know, it, it could be some sort of unknown process on Venus that has nothing to do with life causing um, the phosphine gas, uh, which is exciting in and of itself. Um, or it, it could be, you know, some sort of life in the clouds. I really can't, you know, put a number to how sure I am or a percentage to how sure I am if it's life or not. I think what I would say is that this is a real indication that there could be life in Venus's clouds. Phosphine gas, like I said before, it's very difficult to produce on a rocky planet. And we, we do find phosphine gas in other places in our solar system, just in gas giant planets, where we know that there's high enough temperatures and pressures deep inside of those gas giant planets to make phosphine. But on a rocky planet, it's it's just one of those um, gases that's very, very difficult to produce. So I think this is kind of a step in the right direction to understanding if there's life in Venus's clouds, but also just if there's life in our solar system. And I would say that what this also means is that phosphine gas could be um, a, a really good way to assess if there's life in other places you know, in our galaxy, so including on exoplanets or planets outside of our solar system. 
Um, so, so it's a step in the right direction. For sure. And it's really exciting whether or not it happens, you know, to be, uh, you're right. I think that it's a step in the right direction. We could use it as a biosignature off the back of that. Then it doesn't seem very likely that life could form on the surface of Venus today, at least earth like life. So what do you think are some of the alternative explanations to how life could have formed if it is life that's producing this phosphine? So millions of years ago, um, Venus wasn't like what it is today. Really? And so, yeah. So over a period for about uh, two billion years, uh, Venus was um, a lot more Earth-like than, than what we know it to be now. Um, so, for example, um, it had lower temperatures. It probably had um, large bodies of liquid water. At least it, it could have had large bodies of liquid water. And, um, but unfortunately, over time, um, there was a runaway greenhouse gas effect that heated Venus up and created these high pressures that, that we see today. So it's possible that when Venus was at more reasonable temperatures with liquid water, that there could have been life that, that formed uh, on the surface of Venus. And then as it heated up, that life kind of migrated upwards into the clouds of Venus. And when we talk about life in Venus's clouds, we're not talking about kind of complex, intelligent life. We're talking more about microbes or microorganisms that we see producing um, phosphine, uh, you know, on the Earth. So, um, and th that is a possibility that even on the Earth, we have microbes and microorganisms existing in our clouds, you know, floating around. We have this aerial life. Um, so it's very possible that you know, life started out on the ground in Venus and then migrated upwards and became a sort of aerial life. Some sort of evolutionary process going on there. Do you think it, it could be formed by non-carbon-based life? So life that's not like the Earth's? I mean, it's, it's a definite possibility. Um, you know, that, that's something that, um, you know, we would have to, to look into in the future, really. Um, so even in other places in our solar system, um, you know, on Saturn's moon Titan, for example, you know, there's also theories that there could be some sort of non-carbon-based life in those environments. So I think, you know, that's something that astrobiologists will definitely be interested in, in finding out, you know, if there is some sort of non-carbon-based life um, in other places like Venus and even further out away from the sun as well. So a definite possibility and not something we should rule out just because we don't understand it yet. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So a couple more questions. Um, kind of off the back of this, you know, this study has made a giant leap forward in terms of what we understand about how life potentially could exist in habitats that we thought they, they might not have. Do you think that this, the idea of whether phosphine on Venus was created biologically, do you think we'll ever solve this definitively? And how, how do you think we'll, we'll be able to do that? So we can only do so much with the telescopes that we have here on the ground. Um, what we really need to do, if we want to confirm that there's life in Venus's clouds, um, then we need to send a spacecraft up to study Venus's clouds directly. Um, and, you know, there's different ways of doing that. Um, if you send a spacecraft up, it can kind of take portions of the atmosphere and it can study it directly. Or we could even send spacecraft up take samples of the atmosphere and bring them back to the Earth. It just depends, you know, what sort of mission that scientists decide to, 
to send to Venus. But designing one of those spacecraft and actually sending it and doing a full mission, that takes decades. So we're not going to know the answer for a little while. But what that also means is that we're going to get a new generation of scientists, you know, becoming involved in these studies um, because it will take an incredibly long time to do it. And it will take an incredible amount of effort to do it as well. We're going to need the entire kind of astronomy community really looking at Venus and trying to to answer some really difficult questions about how to search for life in the atmosphere and, and what sort of life we might expect and um, you know, what we really need to be searching for to find that life as well. It doesn't seem like very many probes and spacecraft have been sent to Venus. So I guess this is the, the push that we need, right? To, to be able to send more spacecraft there to study this planet better. Absolutely. I mean, I think Venus is... Um, you know, interest in Venus has kind of waned after some of the first spacecraft were, were sent to Venus. So the, the first interplanetary spacecraft, uh, Mariner 2, was sent to the planet Venus in the 1960s. Um, and at the time, you know, I, I think people, a, a lot of scientists believe that Venus was Earth's twin and Earth's sister planet. And then that mission really kind of um, it changed everyone's view about this planet and, and what it was really like. And it, it revealed Venus to be the sort of hellish landscape, you know, that, that we now know it to be. Um, so, so yeah, I think this discovery of, of phosphine in Venus's clouds will change people's idea that, you know, th there could be life uh, in Venus's clouds. It's, you know, it's not just only about the surface of a planet and what the surface of the planet is like, but there are different places that life can exist and, and we need to maybe give this planet some, some needed attention. Yeah. It's, it's just super exciting. And I think, like you say, this is decades in the making that this is kind of like the start uh, and it can only kind of get better. I think the last question I want to ask you is, again, a little bit of a personal one, but I think many of our listeners will actually really benefit from your answer to this. So like I mentioned, you work here at the observatory, but you have also continued with this active research, albeit at a lesser extent than you probably did before. Um, What's the best thing about being actively involved in research? And what advice would you give to someone who was considering going down this path of research astronomy? So I think the best thing about being involved in research is being able to ask questions and then answer those questions over time. Um, that is my absolute favorite thing about it. I can keep asking questions until I get to a point that no one knows the answer to it. And that's how I know, you know, what I'm going to follow. And so that's the lead I'm going to take next. And so I think that's, that's a really fun thing about it is asking questions, finding out things about the universe that no one knows about, and really just kind of pursuing that knowledge and, and you know, pursuing, for, furthering our understanding of, of our universe around us. And so I think to anyone considering the, the path of research, um, you know, I think it's a great one to take. And I think the advice I would give to them is that, you know, stay curious and be creative because this study, you know, was born out of curiosity and creativity. The lead of the study uh, who I was working with is Professor Jane Greaves at Cardiff University. She didn't come up with this study, you know, we didn't set out to find phosphine in Venus's clouds. She came up with this idea because 
She asked a question and just really wanted to know the answer to it. She was curious about it. She'd been reading studies about penguin poop in Antarctica and, you know, um, yeah, in, in Antarctic regions and realized that there was this weird connection between phosphine gas and life. And, um, you know, just decided to ask one day, I wonder if we could look for phosphine gas in Venus's atmosphere. You know, there's been these theories floating around since the 1960s that, you know, yeah, there probably isn't life on Venus, but if it is there, maybe it's in the clouds. And she just, you know, was curious about trying to do something a little bit different, a little bit eccentric. Um, and, um, you know, like I said, we didn't expect to find this gas, but, um, but then we accidentally did. Um, so, so yeah, stay curious, stay creative. And, um, yeah, I think you'll go far. I, I, you know, if the listeners don't take anything else away from this podcast, I think those two words have pretty much summed it up and they sum science up, right? Be curious and be creative. And I think creativity is the way that you end up finding answers to those questions that you pose because you've got to come up with a a different understanding of how things work. I've got to say there, Emily, lovely and useful advice. Thank you so much again for chatting to us about this study. And fingers crossed that hopefully in the decades to come, we get a, a definitive kind of yes or no that this phosphine the start that you and your group have made is actually a confirmation of life on Venus. How exciting would that be? Yeah, it would be amazing. Absolutely. So stay tuned. Yeah. So that brings us to the end of the podcast for this month. But as always, we would love to know your thoughts on the story. At the start of each month, we post a poll on our Twitter page. We are at ROG Astronomers. So please follow us if you don't already. And for October, the poll will concern if it is in fact life that created the phosphine that's been detected on Venus, then how did that life form? Perhaps you think that life formed on the surface of Venus when it was more habitable, and then it moved into the atmosphere and clouds. Or perhaps you think that maybe it came from the Earth, and it was flung from the Earth to Venus after a meteorite impact on the Earth, and then that life adapted to survive in Venus's clouds. Or maybe, you might think that it's a non-carbon-based life that was actually able to form in the harsh conditions of Venus. And it's that life which has produced the phosphine which has been detected. Let us know. Don't forget to cast your votes on our Twitter page at the start of the month. We'd love to know what you think. And thanks to everyone who took part in our poll last month, which was a question about when the star Betelgeuse might go supernova. And that was off the back of a scientific paper that was released that gave a possible explanation for the dimming of the star seen in late 2019 and into early 2020. Some of you thought Betelgeuse might go supernova in the next 100 years, meaning that some of us might be around to witness it though more of you thought it would likely be in the next thousand years. But almost half of you voted for the option that it would go supernova within the next 100,000 years. And although it's a fair point that within the next 100,000 years also encapsulates the other options, but I reckon those of you that voted for the final option think it isn't likely to go supernova very soon at all. Before I head off, just a reminder that anyone looking for a written account of the astronomical highlights mentioned in the Cosmic Diary at the start of this podcast, you can head to our website, rmg.co.uk, and you can search for our night sky highlights blog. 
It goes through what you can spot in the night sky over the month and includes images and tips to help you with your stargazing. That's all for now though, we have come to an end, so thanks once again for joining me this month. Do take care and I'll see you all next month for more from Look Up. Mm-hmm.